0: working drummer kick it. this is the working drummer podcast serving up
1: perspectives experiences and stories from ground-level working pros advice tips and secrets on how to build a career in the music business hey everyone this is matthew kraus and you are listening to the podcast working drummer today my guest is a legendary drummer rod morgenstein A lot of us are familiar with Rod. He needs little to no introduction, but a lot of us know him from the band Dixie Dregs or the band Winger, the Steve Morse Band, and the list goes on. He was a regular contributor to Modern Drummer Magazine and taught at Berklee School of Music for many years. Rod has always been active in drum education and has uh, several different instructional materials that include videos and books. I've got a little bit more information for you about our live streaming event that will be our 200th episode. It will be here in Nashville. There will be limited seating. The location will be Drum Paradise in their uh, teaching space called The Drum Pad. Uh, Our guests for the roundtable right now is Harry Myrie, Hubert Payne, Travis McNabb, and Seth Roush. We're also going to have an extra guest that we're going to be doing just a real-time interview For those of you who are not in Nashville, this is a live streaming event. There will be ways for you to participate and uh, submit questions, so we'll have more information for you. So the time, January 10th here in Nashville, but again, this will be live streaming and hopefully a way for everyone interested to participate. If you want to support what we do here along the right side of the homepage on the Working Drummer website, you can find buttons for PayPal and Patreon, and any donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. You can follow us on social media, and if you want to be featured on Instagram, post pictures and videos of your gigs using the hashtag Working Drummer. We love seeing what you are all up to. Finally, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher. And YouTube now as well. If YouTube is your choice for streaming audio, every couple weeks we will be putting out a group of 10 episodes for you to visit for the first time or for revisiting the Working Drummer Podcast archives. Please subscribe to this YouTube channel and leaving a rating and review on any or all of these platforms is very helpful for us. Before we get started, let's do our bi-monthly check-in on Arjuna Contreras as he makes the move from Texas to Nashville. Hey, Matt. How are you?
2: Good, good. I in beautiful Pauling, New York today. Well, we're still on tour <laughs> since we last talked the tour has continued. <laughs> we're about halfway we're halfway through now. We have um I think ten or eleven shows to go but um we're playing that venue called Daryl's house tonight oh yeah, owned by Daryl Hall right from Holland Oaks, yeah. And uh, I guess this is where he films his that television show now. Um, I guess it started like in a studio, like on a barn on his property, Mm -hmm. like a yeah, a studio inside of a um, existing barn. I guess from what I understand, but I guess the show got too big from a production standpoint for that for that space, and he bought a property here. I guess he lives somewhere near here, and uh, so. You know, they they film the show here, but then also you know they have just regular shows, and we're one of the regular shows. <laughs> nice. So that's pretty uh, cool. But yeah, man.
1: How many shows per week are you guys playing? Is it pretty pretty consistent. Six, show,
2: six shows, a week. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, six shows. So we we've done twelve shows like in the in the first two weeks of the tour. We played a show in Milwaukee at uh, the infamous Shank Hall, which was actually named. Such after the Spinal Tap movie, <laughs> you know, like there's the scene in Spinal Tap where they they play Shank Hall in Milwaukee. You know, yeah, and that's where he's like, "Hey, smell the gloves here!" Oh, <laughs> you know, that's record, cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> but in the movie, it's like a theater kind right. of space. The, the Shank Hall is a just a small club gotcha. in Milwaukee that has like a. It has a little miniature Stonehenge, like on the on, on the stage behind the, on the wall behind the that's stage. They have a couple of like little. Where'd little you come from? From the bloody airport? There. <laughs> exactly.
1: Where do you think I come from, um, darling? That's great. How oh, man? There's that's history.
2: Like Smell the glove is here. Smell the glove. Everyone gather. What is it? It's like death. It's but, um, <laughs> but uh how much more black can it be the answer is none 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 more black (laughs) um awesome but yeah it's been a cool couple weeks you know our record came out on Friday the 30th of November which we were actually playing in Chicago that night and that's where our record label is based out of so that was quite a party and a show for the record books um all of our label people came out it's uh, Victory Records which is based out of Chicago and uh you see what else we've been I've been in the city the last couple days Uh, I feel so hip calling it the city the city New York City (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah you know I met a woman at PASIC named Dina Toriello I don't know if you've heard of her before I haven't she's been in a lot of rock bands over the years and she's currently drumming for the Broadway musical Head Over Heels which is like a jukebox musical based on uh, the music of the Go-Go's Okay. And the storyline of the musical doesn't really have anything to do with the go gos but I you know, I met her at six she was involved in a panel discussion there and you know, I told her I was gonna be in the city and on tour with my band and she's like, Oh, Reservoir and Heat, I'm a huge fan and you know, and I was like, Cool She's like, Well hey, come if you get a if you have a free night, come sit in the pit and watch me play the show. Yeah. So that's what I did last night actually, like which is a blast and Nice you know, a real thrill. Like, and she's killing the book, and it's like a rock show, basically. So, mm-hmm. it's a fun book to play, and she's killing it. And sadly, I think that she told me actually that that is um, it's closing at the beginning of January. Like, the musical didn't make it, but but um, she's been involved with it for a year or so.
1: That's a whole different and, beast, um, man. That those things and, and yeah, just, like, the cues and. Being able to play with such consistency every night—it's so great.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she and she killed it, and it was fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what's coming was, up, man? The next the couple the weeks here. Well, um, tour continues. Yeah. You know, we we're uh, we get we. have playing in Philly, I think tomorrow, and DC the next day, and starting to make our way down to the southeast, and um, I think we go as far as Jacksonville, Florida, where we're playing a theater. Uh, the, I think it's called the Florida Theater, actually, or maybe it's the Jacksonville Theater, but it's famous because Elvis played there. So it's been been around a long time, and, um, and you see the tour wraps up on the twenty second.
1: Well, hopefully we've got some <coughs> listeners that that will maybe check out the website and see the tour. And, um, yeah. if, maybe reach out through the podcast, um, and, uh, we can, we can relay anything and say, Hey, we got somebody coming out
2: yeah, or to see you play. Yeah. People, you know, feel free to hit me up on Instagram, you mm-hmm. know, like, uh, Arjuna underscore A-R-J-U-N-A underscore. Um, and, uh, yeah, the tour dates are at Okay, slash tour, I think is easy enough, uh, length to remember. If we don't talk uh, before the, the holidays, man, happy holidays, Merry Christmas. Man. Thank you, man.
1: We'll be Same talking way. to you soon. Sounds good. We'll safe travels, man, we'll, and we'll talk to you soon.
2: Okay, sounds good, brother. Talk See to you, soon. Bye. Bye-bye.
1: So here's my conversation with Rod Morgenstein.
0: Going back, I'm at this point, I'm guessing maybe 25 years or so. Um, it, it, life went from being in one band that played 150 or 200 shows a year. And that was, that was what you did being a member of that band. And, um, so, you know, about 25 years ago, I, I could be off by a few years. Um, life changed in that everything became part time to, to some extent, or to the extent that certain things would happen one year and then the next year, uh, you would do something totally different. But I came to the realization after, um, having, uh, the second time in my life where everything ended and you have that scary moment of, Oh my goodness, is this the end of my (laughs) musical career? Um, that I took a hard look in the mirror and said, okay, here's the deal. I really don't want to do anything other than music. Um, for the rest of my life. And so I think the answer to that lies in trying to have a handful of different things going on at all times so that if one thing stops abruptly, you don't have to panic. You still have these other things going on. And uh, that seemed to be uh, the answer for me. And I think for a lot of musicians. So unless you're one of those fortunate Musicians who ends up in the Rolling Stones or U two, mm-hmm. um, you know, or bands like that, um, you're you're really not going to spend your entire career playing just in one band and not doing anything else.
1: Right. We can name those bands on probably just one or maybe even two hands, and that's pretty much it.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, you know, I I come from. Uh, a family of educators both my parents were college professors and uh, so maybe that was in the blood you know and so uh, about 20 years ago uh through um a series of events that had nothing to do with my looking for a teaching position at berkeley college of music i ended up becoming a teacher at yeah. berkeley okay. college of music it's sort of how how you just mentioned you know, a couple of minutes ago, about how one thing leads to another, it doesn't necessarily seem like there would be any connection, but somehow there is. Um, uh, the summer of 1997, I played a concert at Berkeley with Jordan Rudis. Jordan's the keyboard player with Dream Theater. Right. And we, we have, or we had a duo called the Rudis Morgenstein Project, and the chairman of the percussion department, man by the name of Dean Anderson, he has since retired, he had contacted me and said, hey, uh, would you like to do a concert at Berkeley? Mm-hmm. I said, sure. And um, so after we did the concert, he contacted me and said, hey, I got a great report on how things went. Uh, by the way, have you ever thought about teaching on a collegiate level? And I said, no, I've never thought about it, but I come from a family of college teachers. And uh, I'm a school musician. I have a degree in music from, uh, you know, the music school of the university of Miami. Right. Why, what do you have in mind? And he said, um, well, one of our teachers is going on sabbatical for a semester or two and, um, we need to fill his position. And as always happens, I have a pile of applications on my desk, but you know, you're fresh in my mind because you just played a concert and you're a well-known drummer uh, give it some thought and let me know. So I decided to do it just thinking it was going to be one semester, maybe two. And, uh, I just retired from teaching there. Um, after 20 years, I retired in May.
1: Oh, wow. Okay.
0: So, so something that wasn't even on my radar in terms of, uh, uh, you know, a career choice that I was looking for happened mm-hmm. as a result of doing a concert and and it's a great piece of uh advice to musicians, musicians out there that wonder like how do things happen and how do I get from point A to point B It's yeah. kind of like uh, activity breeds activity mm. you know um take every gig you can get, and even if it's not like a an a choice gig you never know where things lead.
1: Yes. That's, and yes, you know, with each true.
0: experience you have, you meet a new group of people. You might hit it off with one of them and somewhere down the road, they might contact you for something else. So that's kind of how most everything has happened for me in my career. I've never gotten anything from whatchamacallit coming up with a resume and, mm-hmm. you know, sending it out or shopping it around. Everything has come from a chance meeting or word of mouth.
1: Well, and, and, and even the, the, when the professor reached out to you, you mentioned, he said, you are fresh in my mind. And I, I think that there, there's oftentimes, a sp- and we've talked about this many times with our guests here, in Nashville that's uh, just inundated with musicians, a lot of times if you just go out— and you, you go to see a friend play, or you just check the scene out, and someone sees you, or you run into somebody. They're like, they're like, hey man, it's good to see you. And you may just interact with them for a split second. The next day, you know, I need somebody for this session. Oh man, hey, I wonder what the so-and-so is up to. I just saw him last night. And next thing you know, it's amazing how that happens. Because uh, things change. Yeah, there it
0: is. Here, I, quick story. A few years ago, a friend of mine called me to see if I'd like to go see... Edgar Winter mm-hmm. performing um, near where I live on Long Island, and so I said sure. So I um, went to the show. Uh, the band was incredible, and um, you know the drummer seemed like a relatively young guy, very impressive. Lots of jobs, did a great job. And so um, after they played, we went backstage to say hello to Edgar and and say hi to the other musicians in the band. And the drummer came over to me and said, "Hey Rod, um, I know you teach at Berkeley." He said, "I went to Berkeley." I said, "Oh no, no kidding! That's fantastic. Do you mind if I ask you how you got this gig with Edgar Winter?" And he said, "Sure. Um, when I graduated, um, you know, I was a little up in the air, like lots of musicians are. You know, what do I do now?" Right. And so he, so he said he decided to move to L.A. because that's one of the big music towns in the United States. And he said, uh, he, he found out, you know, about all the different clubs that have jam nights. And every week he would go to this club or that club to sit in and play a tune. And he said one night, a guy came up to him and said, Hey, you sounded great. Um, have you ever heard of Edgar Winter? Um, <laughs> he's looking for a drummer. You'd you'd be great for him. And that's how he got the gig. Holy cow. So it's like insight in mind. Had he not sat in that night in that club, there's no telling where his life would be today.
1: Is there a similar story about how Dixie Dregs got signed? Yeah,
0: sure. There sure is. Um, Well, let's see. First of all, I met Steve Morse And most of the other guys, when we were students at the University of Miami, that's a whole other story, but um, when we left there, um, we we all moved in and around Augusta, Georgia, because that's where three out of five of the members were from, and it seemed like as good a place as any to set up shop, and plus, it was very uh, affordable (laughs) to live around there. And so... You know, we had done a demo record and sent it around to the surrounding uh, states of the Carolinas and Alabama, um, Georgia, Tennessee, and um, we, we got on a circuit and really probably not more than a year into it. We were playing a club in Nashville, <laughs> probably not far from where you live. Yeah. Called the Exit Inn, and I believe it's yeah, still there. It's
1: still there. Yeah, excellent.
0: Um, I forget what band we were opening up for that particular night, but as we were doing our show, um, one by one, we each noticed a famous person sitting at the bar, and uh, so we got all got excited, and we, you know, we put our hearts and souls into the rest of our performance, and at the end of the set, he and the person he was with came over to us. It was Chuck Lavelle, who was the keyboard player with the Allman Brothers, and Twig Linden, who was their production manager. And, um, you know, they said to us, who are you guys and (laughs) where can we buy your records? And we said, we don't have a record deal. (laughs) And they said, well, you do now, because first thing tomorrow morning, We're calling Phil Walden, who was the president of Capricorn Records, which was the record label that the Allman Brothers were on and Marshall Tucker Mm -hmm. band, a lot of Southern bands. And uh, true to their word, a month or so later, there we were in Macon, Georgia, playing in a club and everybody from the label came out to see this band that Chuck and uh, Twigs were talking about from from Phil Walden, the president to the vice president's on down. And, uh, at the end of our show, Phil Walden came over and said, boys, you got yourselves a deal. That's amazing. And so,
1: and what year was yeah, this? So
0: this, this was, um, 1976. Okay. And so I, uh, you know, there it is again, you know, the message saying, all right, you know, out of sight, out of mind, insight in mind, just, get out there and let it be known that you exist. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that gigs are easy or that they, they pay well. Uh, I'm sure that gig at the exit in was paying us a, a hundred bucks for the night or mm-hmm. two hundred bucks for the night, but it was life-changing for us. The Dixie Dregs is a is a very interesting band um, in that it's um, it's this instrumental fusion uh, sometimes complex rhythmic melodic and harmonic music written by Steve Morse um, I wouldn't say that there's like an exorbitant amount of improvisation mm-hmm. of course there are the solos in every song, either guitar solo, violin solo, keyboard solo, and uh, a couple of of, uh, drum solos and short bass solo. Um, But as far as the drumming goes, um, drummers are in a unique position where most other musicians don't know how to communicate to us exactly (laughs) what they would like, because, you know, a guitarist or a keyboard player, it, um, while everything that they do has a rhythmic component to it, they're dealing with uh, melodies and harmonies, you know, riffs and chord changes. Where drums is its own animal and it's really all rhythmic based. And I, you know, Steve would just often say to me, and my nickname uh, in the in the Dixie Dregs is Sticks. So he'd "Sticks, you know what to do? Just sort of, you know, like." hit the drums and cymbals and, you know, you know. So uh, so the point being that um, I have a lot of freedom in that band to create the drum parts that I think fit for the song. But um, I've al- always felt that it's good to be open-minded and, um, you know, take um, positive criticism or suggestions from the musicians that you're playing with. Like, nobody has, you know, the right answer to everything. And so, um, a perfect example of how that worked in the Dixie dregs was years ago when we were learning, uh, this particular song, I was playing it one way and then Andy West, our bass player said, you know what? Um, just just the way the the line is driving um doesn't it sound to you like uh, um an assembly line just this this nonstop recurring thing that you know cuz the baseline went doo 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 you know, he he kind of just made the suggestion. Can you play like a drum groove that's like an assembly line? <laughs> and then the song the song became known as Assembly Line. It's the first song on the industry standard album, and uh, I was very proud of the drum groove that I came up with because it's just this uh, two measure pattern of um, constant sixteenth notes. You know, between. The ride cymbal, the body, and the bell, and then ghost strokes on the snare with, you know, the occasional hard hits, and then years later, I discovered when I was teaching at Berkeley, and started learning some about um, Latin music, mm-hmm. that the bass drum pattern to my groove creation in Assembly Line is called a baião, b a i a o, which is part of Brazilian sure. music. Yeah. So. You know, so there's for me a really good example where um it was great that someone in the band had a suggestion
1: yes. to make yes
0: um but but it it was all my making, you know what i mean so mm. so drums quite often have a lot of freedom in a band, but um I, you know the dregs music to me it's this one of a kind sound uh that just comes from the genius of Steve Morris. And it's like this controlled um, um, fusion of rock, jazz, classical, country, um, you know, folk music. Mm
3: -hmm. It's
0: a little bit of a lot of things, which we thought was our calling card. And then, you know, we thought it was our calling card being young and naive and not understanding that the music business is a business. And, um, back then, you know, record labels are looking for product that they could sell units of to make money. And, uh, we thought, wow, you know, our music is so interesting, even, even though we don't have a singer, <clears throat> um, the way the music is written, um, it kind of, it keeps evolving, but it sort of follows song formats for the most point, for the most part. So we thought anybody who's a music lover would love this music, you know, not realizing that most people uh, focus on 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 vocals right. and lyrics. Right. I never thought people listened to lyrics. I, I thought you just listened to the to the melody of the lyrics, but you're not really listening to the words. <laughs> and uh, I mean, there you live in Nashville, country music is yeah. the perfect example of where probably the lyric is the most important part of the song.
1: So much so in the so, genre. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, But so, uh, you know, that was part of a huge learning curve where we learned, no, you know, doors are shut in your face. What do you mean you don't have a singer? What do you mean you can't dance to your music? You know, what do you mean it, it doesn't fit any format? And then that also led to, you know, Record stores not knowing whether to put the band in the rock bins, jazz bins, country bins, or classical bins, because most every album followed a format of having some rock songs and a, and uh, and the ethereal jazz song that you can't tap your foot to,
3: hmm.
0: and a country tune, a you know a high energy country song, yeah, and sometimes a, just a violin guitar duet. But through, you know, just this strong belief and strong will among every member in the band and just feeling that we were doing something that nobody else was like our music Mm -hmm. sounds like nothing else. We will persevere as every door is slammed in our face and little by little by little over time, as we just stayed on a circuit that expanded from those five Southern states to the entire country, um, You know, eventually, the band fortunately became a force to be reckoned with, not in terms of the numbers that, you know, top 40 bands uh, sell, uh, or bands with vocalists, but in terms of that musician, instrumental music world, you know, we got to the point where we were selling 100,000 albums. Imagine Hmm. if you could sell 100,000 albums today, even if you're a famous group, you know? Yeah, right.
1: well, let me ask you, Rod, but, but, is that is that yeah. is that formula possible now?
0: Oh my goodness. Uh, as difficult as we thought making it in music was back then. Uh we were lucky enough to where the club owner would say, "Hey man, sure if you drive the 200 miles to play my my venue, I'll give you 100 bucks." Mm-hmm. You know, now venues want you to pay to play. Yeah here, sell these 50 tickets and give us the 500 bucks you get, then you can have the privilege of playing here. So, um, you know, on some levels, as far as that, um, I think it's gotten more difficult, but I think technology has allowed um, vast numbers of people that, you know, have taken interest in recording and writing music where for what used to cost you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars Mm -hmm. to record. Mm -hmm. Now you do it in the luxury of your home or if you're a college student in your dorm room. (laughs) You know, I've had students over the years come in and go, hey, can I play you a video of a song that my band just did? And I'm, you know, sitting there watching a video that back when Winger started, you know, uh, cost the band, you know, a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah. You know, on top of the, the hundred fifty to three hundred thousand to record the album, you know. And now they're just doing it, you know, on the cheap. And one, I I just remember with one student where there was a scene, you know, that looked like it was snowing out. I said, "How much did this video cost you?" And the kid said, "It cost us fifteen bucks because we had to buy the fake snow." <laughs> you know. So, <laughs> Well so so, um,
1: so the pendulum kind of has shifted or or there's a, been a a a a change in the balance of things where it, It's
0: a change in the balance, right? Um uh I don't understand how the record label thing works anymore. The the template for that is completely different. Um I think if if young people are internet savvy and they you know they're able to make to do their own recordings, make their own videos, get them up on YouTube and do whatever it is that makes a video go viral, they can create their own career. The, the, the thing that's different these days is bands used to tour to sell their records um, because the money was made from record sales and airplay. And now the complete opposite is the way things go. A band... We'll do a recording as a calling card, uh, just as a, a promotional tool that you use to let people know that that you're still around and you make your money touring yeah. <clears throat> and selling your merchandise and VIP meet and greets.
1: Right. With the reunion tour, is there anything special you do besides just kind of digging back into the material that maybe you haven't played in a couple of years, or is there anything that you do special to prepare?
0: Uh, Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, I made sure that I started months in advance listening to the music and, you know, I've always discovered that, uh, anything that I've done in in prior years, even if it's 20 years ago, and if I even say haven't even listened to a particular song, um, within a few minutes, it's as if I've been playing it all those years. And I think that's probably the case with a lot of musicians. Um, There were a couple of songs that presented challenges. And uh, one in particular called day 444, which was on the unsung heroes record. I don't recall if we had ever played it live before, but Steve Morris really wanted to do it on the tour. And uh, this might sound, funny, but I couldn't follow my drumming. <laughs> you know, it was as if I was listening to somebody else and trying to make sense of what it is they were doing. It's one of those Steve Moore songs, like, um, oh, I don't, there's a technical word for, uh, a technical musical word f- what, that I'm looking for that I can't find, but, you know, the beauty of Steve's writing to me uh, is that there's no uh, pretentiousness in it in that he doesn't set out to write a song that's in 1916 time or mm-hmm. a song that that is weird. So he doesn't set up a template and go, all right, I'm going to do one measure of this and one measure of this and one right. measure of this. He just writes what's in his heart or what just – comes out of his fingers moving over the fretboard and it is what it is. And I can remember on occasion, you know, back in the old days where, you know, if I'd say, or someone in the band would say, Steve, like what, what time is that? in?" he'd say, (laughs) I don't know, figure it out. Like it just is what it is. And the music sounds so natural and the way it's supposed to be because it wasn't done, um, from the onset with the purpose of it being an odd time song. Mm -hmm. So this song day four, 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 uh, took me probably, you know, a hundred listens Wow. and with certain parts of it, I would just have to go over and over and over and over until it began to make sense to me. And, um, the, the scary part was playing it live. Um, and, you know, the fear that, oh, my goodness, what if one of us gets off? How are we ever going to find each other? Because with this kind of music, since there's no charts for it, it's you know, you learn it by ear. Um, you hear it the way you hear it. And so I might look around and see everybody's feet tapping in a different place. <laughs> so um, I think we had one night where there was a little bit of a train wreck, uh, but somehow in the end... It all, it all worked out. But that song was was the challenge for me. Then another one called "Mo Down" from the first album uh, is a country song that starts, um, you know, with a drum pattern that, uh, <clears throat> in addition to the bass drum, snare, hi hat, and toms, I also used a cowbell and a woodblock. And so, you know, it took a little while to relearn it, but then I had to figure out where should I put the cowbell and the woodblock in the drum set to Hmm. be able to play it in the the most musical and easiest way. And so I had, uh, for that song and for some other songs, I had, you know, different sounds on the uh, rolling pads Okay. in the kit.
1: Sure. Uh, it sounds like maybe the song was through-composed. Is that where... Yes,
0: thank you very much. Okay. I was hearing the word through, but I couldn't I couldn't find the second word. Thank you.
1: I was just shot in the dark there. I, just, I know lyrics can be that way sometimes. I, I have friends that sing, they're like, this song, I, like, I can't find the pattern, the vocal pattern. It's hard for me to memorize because it's a through-composed, but most of them, we're talking about song forms. And the things that throw me are songs that go... There's just no... No uh, pattern to uh, to to grasp onto. It just keeps, you know,
0: just keeps going. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the other thing I, I just wanted to add, yeah, as far as the Dixie Dregs conversation is that what made this tour special, and we did it in uh, March and April, was that it was the first time in forty years right. that the original lineup from the first album, Freefall. Uh, was on stage together. Oh,
1: that's amazing.
0: You know, in the ensuing years, uh, our original violinist, Alan Sloan, uh, became a medical doctor and he <laughs> has his own, uh, pain clinic practice in North Augusta, South Carolina. He has like, I don't know, 15, 1600 patients.
3: Oh my gosh. Um,
0: Andy West, the bass player became an IT specialist for years. Um, and, uh, Steve Davidowski, the keyboard player who is 75 years old, um, uh, you know, does a lot of just construction work on his own property, um, and plays the occasional jazz gig yeah. you know, a couple times a month, but it was kind of retired, yeah. um, from, uh, playing music. And so Steve Morse and I were the only two full-time musicians That's amazing. Still you know, still doing it.
1: Yeah, no, I think there was sp- such
0: a. Oh, and, and the other thing was when word got out that we were doing it, the phone started ringing off the hook from a lot of our old road crew. So oh, they wow. came out with us also. <laughs> <clears throat> it How was fun. unbelievable. There was yeah, there was nobody under sixty-two or sixty-three years of age <laughs> on the tour.
1: You kept the violinist uh, busy then, I'm sure. uh, Here's some pain uh, recommendations for you uh, for this. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Alan Sloan. (laughs) Hey, man, I'm just here to play. I'm just here. I need a break. This is my sabbatical.
0: Uh, You know, the violin is one of the most difficult instruments, musical instruments to play. I don't know how he was able to get himself back to the playing shape that he got himself in. He was amazing.
1: That's, that's there. I think there's some footage online of that tour you guys did this year.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. And we had some amazing guitarists sit in with us throughout the tour. Mm -hmm. John Schofield, um, Reb Beach from winger, Jimmy Herring, uh, from widespread panic. I used to play with Jimmy and jazz is dead. Yeah. Um, Andy Timmons, who else? Warren Haynes, Mm-hmm. You know, from uh, Government Mule and the Allman Brothers and Jennifer Batten, a lot of a lot of people sat yeah, in.
1: It was wonderful. That's awesome. And So I, I wanted—I I ran across something uh, about uh, opening up for Rush in '85. Just as a quick side note, I, I'm, I grew up a huge Rush fan, and I think the first time I saw them was in '87, maybe '88. Did you guys? Was it with Steve Morse or was it Dixie Dregs that opened up for them? Do you remember that?
0: It was the Steve, It was the Steve Morse band.
1: Okay okay
0: and yeah. um it was the last couple of months of nineteen eighty five and then I think january of eighty six something uh-huh. like that. It was the power windows tour yeah um the the guys in rush and their crew were so nice to us, mm-hmm. and um you know I struck up a nice friendship um with some of them mm-hmm. and uh I, you know all of us saw our careers, um, move up a notch as a result of playing in front of a mostly musician audience. Um, when you think about it, how many bands are there in the world that fill up arenas where a significant amount of the attendees are musicians?
1: Right. Right.
0: And so Neil Peart at the time, certainly being the most famous drummer in the world, um, being his opening drummer, uh, was the most amazing experience for me, mm-hmm. um, you know, like that that year. All of a sudden, I saw myself showing up in the Modern Drummer magazine.
1: Mm-hmm. And then years later, uh, you're doing the uh, Burning for Buddy project that <laughs> you produced.
0: Oh my God, was that thrilling and terrifying! <laughs>
1: Well, tell you me know, quickly like, about that. I remember, I, mean, I remember watching the video when that first came out, and and all those drummers in there, and how and how just intimidating that must have been. But it sounded yeah, great. Okay. Well,
0: I, I've told this story before. You'll get a kick out of it. I this is going back to 1994. I was in Australia and New Zealand doing a drum clinic tour, and um, when I Came home uh and was unpacking my suitcase, the phone rang, and it was um Steve Arnold and Kathy Rich. At the time Steve and Kathy were married. Steve used to run the drum department at Manny's Music on 48th Street in New York City. And uh they told me that, you know, Neil Peart contacted them. Uh, He was a fan of big band music, and in particular, you know, Buddy Rich's big band music. And he thought that with his celebrity, he could bring the music of big band, of the big bands, to a wider audience. Uh, And they started brainstorming and came up with the idea of having a bunch of different drummers each play a song with the Buddy Rich big band and release an album. And so. When they called me, they said, you know, Neil said that he he probably knows you better than everybody else because, you know, you and the Steve Morse band toured with Rush um, a few years ago. Uh, and so he told us to call you. <laughs> so um, I said, OK, yeah, I'll get back to you now. When I hung up the phone, uh, I was almost shaking. I was so terrified because I was projecting the thought of facing the Buddy Rich Big Band in a New York City recording studio. And, you know, my wife, Michelle, walked in the room and said, you look like you've seen a ghost. And I must have battled. Like a little kid going, that was Buddy Rich's daughter and her husband, Steve Arnold, and Neil Peart told them that they should call me and they're going to do this album to give tribute to Buddy Rich and they want me to plan it. And I'm so honored that they're asking me, but obviously I can't do it. I, I, I hope I'm either touring with the dregs or whatever, um, so I have to figure out an excuse that I can make up, but I'll still be able to tell everybody that I was asked to do it, you know? <laughs> and uh,
1: She says no. <laughs> and
0: so... So Michelle looked at me and she said, Hey, Rod, you got to remember something. And I said, what? And she said, you're a man. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, like I, I like shriveled and kind of looked at her and went, that's right. I'm a man. You know. So, so she said, of course you're going to do this. Are you out of your mind? So, um, you know, so I called them back and said, I'm in and, uh, I I, I don't know why I was chosen, but they said, okay, here's the deal. Um, uh, On on Buddy's deathbed, he told them that, uh, you know, in his set, there are three show-stopping long numbers. One was the West Side Story Suite. Uh, Another one was the Channel One Suite. And then the third one was called Good News. He said, please lay the West Side Story Suite and the Channel One Suite to rest forever. I don't ever want anybody doing those. But you have my permission to still, you know, allow uh, good news to be played. So they said, we're sending you good news. Oh my that was like a 10 minute song. Um, so they sent me this chart, you know, that was scribbled out by hand years ago. And it was page after page after page after page after page. But I had um, about two and a half months to work on it. And so uh, I did my homework and I memorized the whole thing. But then about two days before it was my time to go in the studio, I get a frantic phone call from one of them. And they said, Rod, big problems. I go, what? They said, this thing has grown larger than we expected. And there are there are a few more drummers who are going to be playing on the record. And so there's not going to be enough time for a 10 minute song. So we want you to record good news, but you have to do a shorter song. That's going to go on this first album. Mm -hmm. I I was freaking (laughs) because I was so ready to go. I was confident. You know, I memorized this whole tune and you know, it went from, swing to rock to Latin to this to that um and so I said look um I, I don't know I don't really know buddy's music so they said all right we're going to send you three charts you pick one and that's the one that's going on the record see you Saturday this was like Thursday oh my so they overnighted me the chart um and that's what's on the record and to this day The other piece that I did was never released. There was a second Burning for Buddy album released. And I remember them calling me saying, okay, here's the deal, Rod. Um, If Cassie Rich ultimately doesn't sing a song on the album, there will be room for the 10-minute piece. Uh, But if she does sing a song, it'll have to wait for a third release. And that's what happened. Uh, she sang a tune, which hey, it's you know, her father's memory.
3: Right, right, right. Um
0: she has every right to do that. Um and there was never a third release, so I don't know where good news is. It it might be the only unreleased <laughs> song from <laughs> It's out from there. That massive recording proj- project. It, I'm telling you, it was both thrilling and terrifying facing this fifteen twenty piece band in I forget if it was the record plant or the power station and Neil Neil was there and a bunch of other people because it was a big hang. Right. And there were lights and cameras on the drums where they'd say, you know, time is money. Try to get this in a couple of takes. And this is the making of Burning for Buddy that we're doing as well as yeah. the recording. And so I remember some months later, I received the videos of the making of burning for buddy. And, you know, I was so anxious to get to my portion and uh, I got to it. And you know, the format was Neil would introduce the next drummer and then it would go to you performing. And I must've, you know, screamed at the screen like Homer Simpson, because Neil said, and this next drummer is Rod Morgenstein And I, I know Rod well from uh, when the Steve Morse band toured with rush on the power windows tour. Before we get to his performance, I have to tell you this great story that his wife Michelle told me. Because Michelle <laughs> knew Neil very well, also from the tour, and she came in the city with me to New York City for the recording. She told him the whole story of "Remember, Rod, oh. you're a man."
1: Oh my! god. And gosh. there it is.
0: It's on the it's on the making of "Burning for Buddy" that's cr- video.
1: That's great.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my god!
0: So it shows the human side.
1: This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com.
0: It took many years for me coming up through the ranks of fusion music to come to the realization that it's not always about the drumming and then how much of your stuff you could throw into every song. You know, so that's, that's kind of an immature way of looking at things. And, uh, I kind of got away with it, you know, in the very early days, but, um, fortunately through working with, uh, very successful, um, well-known, you know, record producers, And having my head handed to me, um, I kind of little by little learned, um, you know, what the important elements are in in terms of constructing a piece of music. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, fortunately, having had those experiences when, you know, years later, I ended up auditioning for Winger, um, I brought them to the audition and so I didn't immediately go into, you know, playing polyrhythms and playing over the bar line and odd note groupings and crazy stuff that is part and parcel of a lot of, you know, jazz rock fusion music. Mm -hmm. Um, but what was very interesting about the winger audition was, um, when Kip started, you know, Kip's not only the singer, he's the bass player. So, uh, the first thing he did was he started pumping ace notes on the bass. So he's like standing over me going chunk, 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 chunk. So I just hit the drums hard and started playing what I think was the appropriate drum groove to that bass line, which is which is something that I call um tried and true kick snare pattern number one
2: <laughs> which is
0: bass drum on one and three, snare on two and four. You know, sloshy hi-hat playing and note or ace note ride. You know, just... <laughs> mm, bat, mm, bat, and, and I kept doing it. And then after however long, he stopped and he looked at me and said, What are you doing? <laughs> so I said, Well, I'm playing what I think is appropriate, you know, to that ace note bass line that you're playing. He said, Great, great, great. I see you can hit the drums hard. And you can play like a rock drummer, you know, hitting the drums with a with a drum beat we've heard a billion times. He said, but Reb, you know, one of our guitarists, told me that you, you know, you play in this band, the Dixie Dregs, which I've never heard of. I don't know anything about the Dregs. Um, you know, Reb said you could do all this crazy stuff. <laughs> so I said, well, I'm intentionally not doing it because I don't want to kind of scare you away. And I, I'd love the opportunity to, to be part of this. He said, okay, well, yeah, fine. I see that you can do the rock thing, but now I want you to lose me. So (laughs) he went back to the eighth note pattern. And then I just, you know, I started doing some more of those drumistic crazy things. Yeah. And he loved it, (laughs) you know, and he was right with me. I couldn't really lose him. And, uh, you know, so afterwards I I asked him why he even cared about those kind of things cuz I just thought Wingers going to be, you know, like Death Leopard. And uh he said, "Well, you know, we don't have a record deal yet. We keep getting rejected from every label with our demos, but we're getting ready to go for a third go around of shopping." Um he said, you know, to get a record deal, you kind of have to fit into some kind of format. It's like when I was telling you before, no one knew where to put the Dregs in a record store because they didn't know if we were a rock band, a jazz band, a you know, a country band, or a classical orchestra. Um, he said, "We need to fit in with bands like Kiss and Def Leppard and Bon Jovi, but." he thought it would also be cool if there were elements of winger that none of those other bands had. Right. And he said, maybe having a drummer who can do things that you don't normally hear in a rock setting, uh, in certain places could be one of those things that could maybe set us apart from those other bands. Sure you know, so true to his word in, you know, that the ending of the song headed for a heartbreak that became a top 40 hit um, and another song, Rainbow in the Rose and some other songs, I I, I would sort of get the signal, like, go for it, you know, do that crazy stuff. (laughs) And it's just sort of, you know, become a part of the band. And for people who really are familiar with winger, um, they know that there's this progressive element to the to to a band that is considered you know one of the more easy listening metal bands like, Death Leopard and
1: mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Um, the other bands that I mentioned
1: and and I recall just w- when 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 Winger first hit I, I mean I knew your name right away I think uh, maybe as a result of what was happening before and reading about you uh, we knew there was going to be something different about it you know, right from the start, just uh-huh. in name recognition alone. And it's like, okay, what's going on here? There's something interesting, you know, aside from the, 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 the melodies, the hooks, the, the singing, the other things that made it uh, to fall into the genre that you're speaking of. We knew that, that, that uh, there was some, you know, there was more to it. And we, and we figured, well, if, if Rod's a part of this, then what do these other guys have going on too? You know, that uh, we can all well. hang our hat on
0: yeah yeah well you know Reb Beach the main guitarist in the band um, all his life you know he's been a bit of a fusion jazz rock um, fanatic mm-hmm. in fact uh he's putting the final touches on a on a solo record that's all instrumental and uh, amazing amazing so when I met Kip and Reb, like I said Kip he didn't know who I was, but Reb was really excited because he was a Big Dixie Dregs fan.
1: Is that how you got the the audition? The uh, yeah, uh,
0: it, you know, it's a it's again, it's another one of those stories. I was I was in New York City in the offices of a Japanese management company, hoping to get a five week tour with one of their artists, a New Age artist by the name of Kitaro.
3: Yeah, yeah, I and um, wow,
0: yeah. So, um, so. You know, unfortunately, when I was in the meeting, they said, hey, you know, I know a week ago we told you to come up and we were going to talk about maybe using you for Kitaro's tour. But Kitaro flew from Japan to L.A. and he decided to just choose musicians that live uh, on the West Coast in the Los Angeles area. So sorry. (laughs) I said, "Uh, "Okay, well, please just think of me if you know, if anything else, else comes along. And as as I was leaving their offices, I heard some rock music coming from behind a closed door to another room. And so, uh, so, you know, this man at the, who ran the management company, he said, Hey, let me introduce you to these guys that they're using our eight track machine to do (laughs) demos. We're trying to help them get a record deal. Opens the door and it's Kip Winger and Red Beach. Yeah. I didn't know anybody else was going to be in the office. I was just hoping to get a five week guitar tour. And it was from that chance meeting that I got in Winger. That's amazing. You know, so again, you never know um, when you're out and about and just trying to be active, like where things will lead.
1: That's crazy.
0: I did a concert at Berkeley, not expecting to become a teacher at Berkeley for 20 years. (laughs) I was in a Japanese management company hoping to get a five week tour and that would be that and ended up in Winger for 30 years. (laughs) Um, And I was in a jazz improv class at the university of Miami at playing piano thinking maybe I want to be a jazz piano player. And one of the guitarists came up to me one day and said, Hey, Someone told me you play the drums. Can you sit in for my drummer uh, until his arm heals? Cause he's a surfer and he, he hurt his arm. It was Steve Morse. Oh my God. And I went to the rehearsal and it was the Dixie Dregs. Yeah. You know what I mean? So for me, nothing has happened as a result of looking for it. I've, like I said, I've, I've had those times where I, I had no idea if the next thing was going to happen. And that's, certainly a scary feeling wondering if your career has hit a, you know, a brick wall.
3: Right, right. But
0: always the next thing seems to come as a result of a chance meeting or just being in a, in the right place at the right time, all those cliches. The thing that has to follow all that is uh, another expression, luck favors the prepared. So mm-hmm. y- you, you'd never really know when, That moment might be presenting itself. So my suggestion is if you play a musical instrument, in our case, we play the drums, try to um, always be on your game. Don't let a week go by that you're not practicing. Very, very important.
1: Right, right, right. Before I go on, actually, I want to – now, there's a lot of stories that sometimes I'll relate something to it, but I end up editing myself out of this anyways because it's, it's really about you. But being that it's my damn podcast, I, I've got to tell you this uh, story about Winger. You guys were playing at the Ohio State Fair around 1991, and I was playing with a singer on a side stage somewhere. And so we had to find a certain gate to get through. I lived, in, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. So I've been down in Nashville for about, for about 20 years. But So the bass player, a friend of mine, we pile all my drums and his stuff in my 86 Ford Escort. We're looking for the gate to get in to get to the stage, and there's a, an artist's entrance. We get there, and and uh, the lady's like, hey, you can't... I'm like, well, we're with the band. That's, we're playing, and we're, we're trying to get in. And she looks, and she sees the drums in the back. She goes, oh, are you you the winger? I'm like, uh, yeah, that's me, Rod Morgenstein. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, well, all right, that's so awesome. Hey, we're so happy that you're here. We'll just go, just follow this road right on down here. And there's the stages here and blah, blah, blah. And we were like, thank you so much. We're just, we just wanted to get into the place because we had to set up, but we, we pulled in, we looked at you, we were laughing and I'm like, are you kidding me? It's like she does. She think that Winger comes in in an '86 Ford Escort with a uh, atomic kit in pieces in the back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Look, it, it worked. It, it worked. You, and know, we, you, you, yeah. weren't, you weren't doing anything malicious.
1: We weren't, and uh, you know, we waited for the puppet show to be done, and then we set up our stuff and we played. So it was a it was a <laughs> successful day. <laughs>
0: That's great. Hey, so we we have a connection there.
1: Yes, (laughs) it's the butterfly effect, Rod. I think. uh, (laughs) um, Great. Well, being prepared. Sorry, I I had to tell you that story. It was uh, that that to this day, and some of my longtime friends, it has. I mean, that is like you know that you have those lines, almost like movie lines that keep cropping up, or personal stories. That has been a line from some of my friends, like you, the winger, you the winger. Um, <laughs> the winger. Yeah, it's part of the lexicon uh, amongst some close, dear friends of mine. Uh, and you're a part of it, my friend. Um being, being prepared, the, having all those things, luck, luck favors the prepared. Tell me about, I, I came across a story that I didn't know about, um, an audition you did for Journey in 86.
0: Right. Okay, I was in... Germany at the time playing in a German band called Zeno that had signed reportedly the biggest record deal in the history of the music business for a new band. Um, There were billboards all over London with the album, you know, next to Coca-Cola billboards. Um, The album cost a half a million dollars to record. I met them after the album was done. It had three different three or four different drummers on it, three or four different producers, vocals done at Abbey Road Studio, guitars in Amsterdam, mixing in New York, um, they were being touted as the new queen. Hmm. Um, and I felt like I had won the lottery having you know passed the audition in New York City and, and got in that band. But when I was over there, uh, after two or three months, uh, unfortunately everything kind of um, you know, took a downturn and it looked like it was turning out to be uh, as as great as the band was, <clears throat> you know, overhyped and it wasn't going to happen. And I got a phone call, I forget from who, but they said, Journey is auditioning drummers, they're auditioning like 120 guys and um, Larry London, who had recorded the Raised On Radio mm-hmm. album, yeah, uh, had recom- He had recommended me. Actually, I didn't know it at that point. It was when I when I flew back to the states and I ran into Larry at the airport in Atlanta. Um, he told me that he was the one that recommended me wow. to, to audition. So I, you know, I thanked him profusely for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I flew from. I'm not sure if I was in Germany or London. Flew to New York, and I had one day to run out and buy all the cassette tapes of the six or eight different songs that I had to learn and practice, and then the very next day fly out to San Francisco. And, uh, and I remember the the most challenging of all the songs was Don't Stop Believing, uh, you know, that incredible worked-out drum part that Steve Smith Put together for that song it's not just you know a tried and true kick snare pattern it, it's a it's a drum groove that keeps evolving with all different sounds in the drum set you know the bell of the ride cymbal tom-toms open hi-hat and so i spent the bulk of my time learning that song hours so you know i'm all jet-lagged and now i have to fly another three hours the next day um uh you know a three-hour time difference on top of the six or seven hour time difference that I was experiencing in New York from Europe, get to the audition. They let me in, tell me to set the drums up, get comfortable. And you know, there's the band and Steve Smith, Steve Smith, Steve Perry, you know, is not eight feet away from me. And he goes, okay, Rod, what song do you want to start with? And I said, Oh, let's start with don't stop believing because I learned it note for note. Yeah. So, uh, We play the song down, and he looks at me. He goes, You know, that's just how Smitty played it. (laughs) I went, Yeah, well, as I was communicating back, he said, But that's how Smitty played it. Now, you play it how you would play it one, two, three, four. And, (laughs) you know, my mind went completely blank. I had just spent, you know, half of the previous day learning this song, No Turnout. I wish they had said, to those of us who are auditioning, you don't have to learn the, the songs as as they are on the record. Play them however you feel. And so, um, you know, I don't remember what I played on the spot. And then we played one or two other f- songs. You know, they thanked me and, you know, a couple of the guys had very nice things to say. But ultimately, um, uh, you know, they chose someone else. I, mm-hmm. I think about 120 drummers. Holy cow. Uh, auditioned
1: yeah it, it, it makes me think about uh, it kind of leads me to this idea of and we, we talk about this a lot especially with Nashville drummers that are playing with different singers and 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 going into audition and uh, the, for a long time there was this uh, there's session players that play on the records and there's touring drummers that do it and now that those worlds are colliding a lot more in the last 10 15 years there's uh, there's less of that happening, uh, but oftentimes we say, "Well, hey, you know, learn the part the way it was, use that as a starting, use that as a a, um, a place to start, and then you know, if there's room or if the uh, if the artist is okay with it, then you you start making it your own." And so, I I, I kind of grew up doing. A, I think there's a lot a lot of us that that learn those parts, or, or, and don't stop believing is is a perfect one. There's so many. That so many bands and so many bands. When when you're doing covers that play that song, and so people will do their own version of it. But it's you know we always talk about you know you know play, learn what Steve Smith did. What a great what a great part and what a what a fun challenge. And uh, it's it's pop music isn't necessarily impro- it's not known as improvisational music. But what happens when you know you're in a session and there is an immense amount of improvisation that has to happen on the spot, even with groove-oriented stuff. There's all those elements that you need to maintain a uh, your improvisation chops. I mean, it, Neil Peart is a great example of, it's like, hey, I want to expand my improvisational chops because everything that I did was very formulated. Um, and it's not, there isn't two different worlds. There isn't just pop and, and jazz or, or these things. You have to have those things. so. The story of your audition was one of the things that kind of came to mind. The, the, uh, the book that you have out, uh, also uh, Drum Set Warm-Ups, made me think about this because that is a book I wanted to ask you a little bit about that I think would really be beneficial for me as far as getting comfortable playing around the kit and, and pushing um, unused movements and muscles that I don't get to do. Uh, on gigs, but the ability to, to feel comfortable in any direction I go. Um, yeah. So all those, it, it's a lot. I know I'm saying a lot here, but the importance of being able to, what would be your advice to somebody that may be stuck? I'm asking for a friend, Rod. Um <laughs> <laughs> Who somebody is maybe kind of stuck in a rut when I you know with learning songs, playing parts, fine, check, 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 but being able to improvise, but with with the utmost confidence in any genre.
0: Yeah, you know it's hard to break habits, and we all get stuck in ruts for sure. And we always go to the safe stuff, you know, the things that the tried and true things that we know have worked before, uh, you know, you could do something like, uh, you know, um, add a few other things to your drum set, take some stuff away, just set up kick snare hat and play like that for a few hours. Um, if you're right-handed, set your drums up left-handed.
3: Just, mm, yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, you're going to sound pitiful, but it's going to make your brain, uh, think a new way mm-hmm. to make things work. It might help, uh, Spur some ideas. Um, to, to maybe uh, you know, listen to music that you that you've rarely listened to. Uh, try to transcribe something that sounds interesting to you. Um, <clears throat> get together with other drummers. Take a lesson. Yeah. Uh, the, the occasional one-off lesson uh, with a different drummer, um, and and then jam. As much as you can with other musicians uh, because the way that they play will be unique and it might, um, you know, cause you to react in different ways. The most um, incredible jamming experience I've had in my career is playing in the group Jazz is Dead. Yes. Um, Because the concept behind that band. It was not only just playing the music of the Grateful Dead. The name of the band is a play on words, you know, jazz is dead. So we're playing the music of the Grateful Dead, but it's more of uh, an open approach to it. And um, improvisation and taking chances and falling on your face, uh, if it happens, <laughs> was sort of uh, the credo of the band. It was the modus operandi, you know. Go for it. Uh, <clears throat> When we play the same song from last night, you don't have to play it the same way. If you're feeling something different, go for it. But don't play it safe. Yeah, Take chances. It's okay to make mistakes because the jam band audience is totally forgiving. They don't want to hear the same show if they came last night. Right, right. They want it to be totally different, just like the Grateful Dead. You know, like they had a set with or a set um uh, you know a, a list of 500 songs and so they could only do 20 a night so they could theoretically do 25 different shows without even repeating a song um so the, the jam band world is a completely different environment than say the the rock uh metal world or or pop world where so many things are rehearsed and you play them the same way, same way night to night and the band has to you know, members have to stand in the same place on stage because the lights have been focused a certain way. Jam bands are the complete opposite of that, 180. Right. right, right. And for me, when I was finally able to just give myself to that concept, it became one of the most exhilarating experiences I've ever had. Not to mention uh, the fact that uh, it initially, Uh, for the first couple years of doing it, Alfonso Johnson was the bass player, (laughs) and he was a bass idol of mine. I had seen him in Weather Report and then the George Duke-Billy Cobham band. And then, uh, you know, the other guys in the band, when I originally joined, were Jimmy Herring and T. Lavitz, the keyboard player from the Dixie Dregs. But what was terrifying was... I was replacing Billy Cobham, who was one of my biggest idols, mm-hmm. and so it was—you know—seemed like such a big chair to fill. Um, and so I would do a few gigs, and then this other amazing jazz fusion drummer, Jeff Sype, he would do gigs. And then for one summer, uh, we we did it as a double drum thing, just like the Grateful Dead, but it was two fusion drummers. You know, who like to kind of play busy yeah. playing together, but Jeff and I worked out some really cool things and did a great, uh, like an exciting drum solo based on a lot of the um, Indian rhythms that he taught oh, wow. me. Okay, yeah, but also along the lines of what we're talking about, the drum set warm ups book sort of came about um, over many years of me accumulating scraps of paper of making up some of the most bizarre exercises that really had nothing to do with beats or fills. They were just patterns of motion uh, of going side to side, up and down, crisscrossing drums, um, forcing one hand to go, say, from my low floor tom to the high hat to the bell of the ride cymbal to the snare, um, to just try to wake up all the dormant muscles that we don't necessarily use when, when we sort of play regularly. And uh, these extreme patterns of motion over time, I discovered, were increasing my, my technique, you know, in, in an up, upward way. And um, I also found that these bizarre exercises were um, making my brain work in ways that were helping me come up with new, interesting ways of playing. So, uh, you know, it took maybe 15 or more years before I was sitting at my drum pad one day warming up, quote unquote, and looking at my drum set that was two feet away from me and having this epiphany <laughs> of like, wait a second, I don't play the drum pad. I play the drum set and on a drum pad, your, your arms aren't flailing all around the kit to hit cymbals and drums and your feet aren't doing anything. Right. So why do you warm up on a slab of rubber and then you sit down and you play beats and fills on the drum set? Why why aren't I playing scales and arpeggios like every other musical instrument does when they warm up? Why aren't I doing those on the drum set? Um and I you know, to to equate the drum set warm up book to say a piano warm-up book, or a guitar, or a flute, or a chumper or whatever, um, nobody jams and goes. You know, you do scales and arpeggios um, so that one, you can learn all the different notes in the different kinds of scales that there are. Um, but it's also helping. Strengthen the different muscle groups in your fingers and your wrists and your hands and yeah. your arms. Yeah. And so uh, that's how I equate the drum set warm up book to uh, all the other instruments. It, it was mind blowing to me in that epiphany moment that uh, you know my thinking was, are you kidding me? Um, <laughs> am I the first person on the planet that it's hit that the drum set doesn't have a warm up book? Yeah. So so I then gathered up my years of scraps of paper and then spent the next year you know putting it together. Uh,
1: I I'm 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 getting it man. I'm looking forward to to digging into it. Um, it's so funny oh, that cool. you, you that I I came across that uh in recent weeks I've been going back and uh doing and preparing for more teaching uh rediscovering some new ways to use syncopation. And uh, and and just falling in love with it uh, again. And so, ironically, I I'm that guy that sits down with the practice pad for a half hour, forty minutes before I head out to my gig. And I would do that, but I would I would I would take a little time to then run downstairs. I've got a nice soundproof room, and work on some syncopation patterns before I head out to my gig, so that my my arms are different places, my feet are moving, and I I, I walk in and it's like from the downbeat feel more centered and connected just from that little bit of time.
0: Sure. Now, uh, you know, I don't discount the importance of practicing on a drum pair cause I, I still do it. Yeah. yeah. But my point is when you first sit down on the drums, I know what I do and I'm sure it's what every other drummer does. You go to one of your go-to fav- favorite beats mm-hmm. or fills. It's like that you did yesterday and the day before that, and the day before that. So, um, uh, I'm just suggesting before you do that, how about just going through a few minutes of some different exercises that are are just going to be these exaggerated patterns of motion that will really, um, you know, force your body going in every direction uh, imaginable and, um, and, you know, building your technique on so many different levels along the way. Then close the book and do the things that you normally do. And you, you will see little by little, um, so many different parts, uh, of the way we play drums will, will get better and better.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exciting. I I ran across this a a couple days ago and I I had to, had to write it down and this kind of ties in with what you had mentioned with this, this, what we're talking about now, but one thing you had mentioned before about playing with other people, um, Matt Chamberlain posted something on his, on Facebook or Instagram or something, but he wrote, uh, instead of upgrading your music software or sequencing something, leave your house and play music with your friends in a room with no computers or cell phones, at least for a few hours. I guarantee your life will be better for it. Hashtag old man rant, <laughs> hashtag music, yeah. hashtag truth. And I was like, ah, oh, yes. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it.
0: Who, who would think to
1: do that? Uh, I know, I know. <laughs> I know you have some shows uh, coming up again. We mentioned uh, uh, the Winger Tour. You've got uh, some shows in, in Illinois, uh, Iowa, uh, Akron, Ohio. Um, wh- what, uh, what's the rest of your year look like?
0: yeah there's there's the week this coming weekend a couple of shows and then the end of december and that that'll be it um till the end of the year then next year we have shows starting to fill in in uh, January February, and March all uh with winger mm-hmm. and hopefully maybe sometime next year we will uh talk about recording some new music. I think the last winger album came out about four years ago, and you know it's there's there's something it's, I don't want to use the word tragic, um, but like when we do records, it, it's not just like, hey, let's throw together 10 songs and get it out there, blah, blah, blah. Like so much effort goes into, um, uh, you know, 10 great songs being written and just being recorded properly. Um, I wish uh, the music business, <clears throat> um, would sort of keep its ears open for some of the older bands that continue to make really good quality mm-hmm. music. Mm-hmm. But it seems like, you know, I mean, we're, we're at a point where it seems like, uh, you know, the big record labels are just looking for child stars that, uh, if they could get one big record out of them, it's great. And then they move on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, back, I'm not, I don't know how old you are, but you know, I grew up in the sixties and, and when you found a band, like for me, it was Jimi Hendrix, Cream, the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Jethro Tull, you stayed with them. Right. You know, you, you craved the next album that was due out, you know, and you'd find out the release date and then run to the store <laughs> to buy the record the day it was released. Um, I get the impression now, like with a lot of young people, um, they like songs. They don't necessarily even know who does the song, and if if they do like the song, it's not like they then look to see what other songs that particular artist does.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, and I, you know, I don't want to sound like an old person, like my parents or my grandparents, where they say, "Oh, are you kids?" and da 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 da. Um, um, it's more. A recognition of the fact that uh, the world is changing so fast with technology, almost to where there are parts of it I don't recognize anymore, and really feel uh, like an old person. But you know, I do respect uh, the fact that each generation uh, deserves the right to have its own things. Yes. You know. Yeah. Who am I to say? you got to listen to Led Zeppelin and the Beatles. You know, like, of course you don't have to. Um, but in my mind, I can't imagine life without that music. No. Um, so I, I try to be open-minded um, with my little bit of closed-mindedness. Cause, you know, every, I guess, every individual... Has the things that float their boats, you know?
1: And those things, those uh, I think you will find young people keep going back to those places too, and and because it, it's it just works so well. You can't I can't even imagine creating modern music without having some of those roots, um, you know. At the at the very least, I mean, freaking Beatles, come on, some melody here.
0: Yeah, I hear you. But you know, I re- I recently had lunch with a friend who used to manage the Steve Morse band, and then he went on to manage the group Cinderella and Kiss. And he's still in the business. His name is Larry Mazer. He manages Lamb of God. Um, And he was just telling me, you know, it's it's a whole different world. He said the big labels are not interested in signing rock bands anymore. Wow. They're just not. So you have to go to these smaller niche labels Mm
3: -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: if you play rock. Who would have ever thought it would come to that, you know?
1: Uh, but but being aware of it um, and knowing how to work within what is existing is is the way you have to do it. to uh, again, hashtag old man rant. You it's it, sometimes that can be a waste of time. It's like put that energy in figuring out what it is, how to get your music to people, and how to manage that uh, and work within it. Work within it because again, the, we talked about before. There's a there's a shift in balance. It's like. Yeah, you, there you have to go to these smaller labels, but and with a smaller budget, but you don't need the budget to create the music that you did 20 years ago. Um, true. So it's very it's true. difficult.
0: I just wanted to mention a couple of things Please. that just popped into my head. Yeah. One is uh, I, I played probably drums on half of uh, a new Jordan Rudis, uh CD that's coming out uh, maybe early next year. Okay. Um, that was thrilling doing that. I love always playing with Jordan. And then the other thing is I just wanted to mention that uh uh yeah, I created um a college course for Berkeley's online division called Rock Drums. And uh it's a twelve week course that runs four times a year. And if uh if anyone has any interest in kind of getting some information on it, they could just Google, you know, Berkeley's online Division or yeah. I, I don't have well, the specific address, but there's a, there's a way to find
1: out about it. I'll get to that link and I'll put that in the show notes, and so our listeners can access that uh, through our website or through their phone or wherever. There's show notes uh, below this episode, so um, okay. those those links will be available for sure with with uh, uh, hope with all the other groups and, and touring stuff like that. Um, so yeah, we we want to make sure that we. We have that accessible, and and it's just uh, our our way of of hopefully, uh, you know, giving you the the thanks for the time and the information and to share that stuff. Yeah.
0: Great. All right. Well, hey, Matt, have a great session.
1: Hey, thanks, man. Um, We'll be in touch. But thanks, Rod, again. It it was so nice to talk to you.
0: Same here. Same here. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: I want to say thanks to Rod for taking the time to speak with us and tell us that awesome story about uh, doing the Burning for Buddy video. I remember when that came out and those CDs, and uh, he did such a great job. It really kind of uh, brings the human side of what a lot of our heroes Uh, go through. And it was, that was just a blast to hear. Many thanks to Ben Hands for connecting us with Rod and uh, making that interview happen. So I appreciate that. Again, the time is January 10th for the 200th episode live streaming event here in Nashville. But again, the fact that we are going to be live streaming, I think around 6 p.m. Central time, that will give everyone a chance to uh, hang out, watch, uh, participate uh, ask questions, submit questions, and um, really looking forward to this. Zach's going to be coming in from Atlanta. It's just uh, its turning into a big production, and I'm, I'm super excited, and we'll have more and more information as it comes together. Stay tuned next week for Zach's interview, his last interview of this year, episode 199, and then we're going to take a little bit of time off for the holidays. We'll be back in the new year to uh, prepare for the 200th episode. So everyone. Thanks. 2018 has been awesome. And uh, we really appreciate you listening and uh, hope to see you around. Bye bye.